of God's Word and look with me to the book of Exodus as we continue to make our way through this incredible narrative of God's revelation of himself to his people. Exodus chapter 13 will be in verse 17. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. And we'll make our way down through chapter 14, verse 14 this morning. Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 17. We begin this journey in this section of the book of Exodus as Israel makes her way from Egypt to Sinai. And the journey from Egypt to Sinai is an interesting journey that is filled with a number of different expressions along the way. Expressions of uncertainty for the nation of Israel. Expressions of a lack of faith on behalf of the nation of Israel. Here, we see some of those difficulties in this journey between Egypt and Sinai. Pharaoh's army is going to encamp around the nation of Israel, and Israel will express a a lack of faith and trust and hope and God. We will see later that Israel is going to lack water from time to time, and then they're going to get bored with eating the same food over and over again. And yet, God, at every one of these turns, is continually at work. Yahweh himself is continually at work through these texts, bringing his people into a right relationship with him. This narrative begins on the hills. Today's narrative begins on the hills of Israel's flight out of Egypt and that night in which the death angel paid a visit to all of the homes who had not had the blood applied. And this narrative begins with this journey on behalf of the nation of Israel out of bondage, out of control of Pharaoh, and on their way to the land that God has promised them. And this narrative, this This movie script this morning is comprised of several scenes. We see the first scene here in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 7 as God leads his people in a way to strengthen their trust and faith in him. Notice what the text of Scripture says in verses 17 and 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Israel was up the top portion of Egypt, and you know the geography of the land. It would seem that it would be natural that they would just follow the coastline and make their way right into the southern part of the nation of Israel, and there inhabit the land that God had promised. But the Bible says that God did not lead them in that way. God didn't lead them in the path that would seem most natural and the path that would be what we might perceive as the easiest. God did not lead them that way. Notice what the end 
end part of verse 17 says, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now Israel, as you are well aware by this time in the narrative, they've been living their lives down in Egypt. They are an enslaved people. They have grown to more than a million people, yet their enslavement did not enable them the opportunity to grow into some type of military might or power. Israel isn't a marching army of a million strong ready to go and conquer the peoples on the way to the promised land. Even though the text of Scripture indicates to us that they are camping in military units, they're not a military people. And God, knowing more than anyone, the fickle hearts of his people, knows the text of Scripture says, if he leads them in the easy way that we might think, if he leads them along that easy path into Canaan, they perhaps might be prone to change their minds. We're going to see some of that even in this narrative today. So what is God doing? God is ultimately leading his people on a path so that their faith and trust and hope in his sovereign direction might be strengthened. Verse 18, but God let the people go around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Now we don't know exactly how long this narrative is is taking place. But we do know the things that the text very specifically is telling us. We do know what the text is, is reminding us and how God is indeed preparing his people. And the Bible says that this journey is preparing the nation of Israel for what? Warfare. Israel will have to be a warring people, and they're going to learn a lesson in this text of Scripture that we'll see next week that will serve as a foundation in their relationship with God in a sense forever. To be reminded that God is indeed one who fights on behalf of his people. But God led them in a way, we might say, that doesn't seem right. Now, we've all been on a journey in life, have we not? And oftentimes, we're like what the text of Scripture says here at the beginning. We think there is an easier path. We think that there is a more natural path. Perhaps there is even a path that is more easily explained. It seems more natural. But Israel is learning what the psalmist will recount to us years later. Man plans his steps, but God ordains his path. And friends, the narrative of my life and your life is to make sure that the path, the, the, 
The steps that we are taking are along the path that God has ordained. And you're going to see in this narrative God's unbelievable providential care for his people. Why? They're walking along the path that he has prepared. Now, this text also tells us something about this narrative. The text here tells us that the nation of Israel is journeying along the Red Sea. Now, I've got a little bit of fear and trepidation as I stepped in the pulpit this morning. I looked back and saw the good Dr. Russell Fuller sitting back here. And Dr. Fuller taught uh, Hebrew and Old Testament at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for more than 20 years, studied at Hebrew University. Dr. Fuller, when I went to Louisiana College a little over 20 years ago and learned the narrative of the Red Sea, I did not learn it as the narrative of the Red Sea. I learned it as the narrative of the Reed Sea. And the reason why I learned it as the narrative of the Reed Sea is I was being taught the text of Scripture by a group of men who did not believe in the text of Scripture. I was being taught by a group of people that didn't rightly understand God's miraculous, providential ability to accomplish whatever He wills in the life of His people. I learned it from a group of men who wanted to look everything through the natural, and if you can't explain it by the natural, then clearly it's no way for this to take place. But this isn't the only place that the Bible tells us that God is going to provide a miraculous salvation for the nation of Israel at the precipice of the impossible the crossing of the Red Sea. The nation of Israel is on a journey from the northern portion of Egypt. They're headed down south. Instead of just taking a what we might perceive more natural trajectory, simply in an eastward direction over into Canaan land. But notice what happens next here in verse 19. This next scene reminds us that God is faithful to his promises. He's going to communicate that in two ways. God is faithful to his promises. He gives us the example of the person of Joseph here in verse 20. And then in verses 20 through 22, God's going to show us that he is indeed faithful to the totality of his people, the nation of Israel. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made, the bond, had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Now, it might seem rather interesting that we have a break in the narrative. Dr. Fuller, I was also taught J-D-E-P, the documentary hypothesis, that there are these multiple authors that are weaving together this narrative by some divine editor at some point in history. And aha, we have a moment here, we might say, clearly disconnected from the rest of the narrative. So surely some other writer wrote this section and an editor later in time came back and wove them together. But that's not what's happening, friends. 
as the nation of Israel continues this journey along the path that God has ordained, God is reminding them yet again at the beginning of this narrative of his faithfulness to, him, to, to them. And he reaches all the way back in this narrative to the beginning of their journey down to Egypt. And he goes back to brother Joseph. There's a chance that perhaps even in the context of this narrative, a large portion of the nation of Israel have even forgotten who Joseph is. Perhaps being down in slavery for so long, they had forgotten their heritage. They had forgotten the narrative of God's providential care and call of the nation of Israel. And and here, as they make this journey, as they will in a matter of a few days or a few weeks or a few months, however long it is, at the beginning of this narrative, it's as though God is shouting out to the nation of Israel, I am faithful to you, my people. Look at how I am fulfilling my promises, even to one from several hundred years ago, Joseph. We go back to Genesis chapter 50. And there in that narrative, Joseph makes his brother's promise that they will indeed carry his bones from him, from this land to the promised land. Why, friends? Brother Joseph had a hope in the promises of God's word. Brother Joseph had a hope of eternity. Joseph had a hope in the eternal workings of a triune God, that indeed God would bring his people to a promised land. And like Joseph, and like the nation of Israel, so too have we, who by faith have trusted in the Lord Jesus, understand that we are on a journey awaiting the promises of God, that we too will join with the triune God in eternity in a promised land, in a land that currently we have no sight of, we have no vision of, we have no concept of, but by faith we believe that we too shall join God in eternity in a land that he has promised. But God is not only showing his promises to the nation of Israel through reminding them of his word to Joseph and his promises to Joseph, but look at verse 20. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. See, friends, one of the things that God is promising to the nation of Israel in this text is not simply that they might have some type of concept and awareness of God's providential care. No, what God is promising the nation of Israel is himself. God's ever abiding presence to lead and guide 
and direct and protect his own people. See, the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night is not a natural phenomenon. It is a supernatural phenomenon of the very presence of God. God is guaranteeing to his people his very presence. In Israel, you've read the narrative, is going to need that continual reminder of the goodness of God's promise of himself with them. For their faith along this journey will be tested in every measurable way. And like the nation of Israel, we too are on a journey. We too, on this faith journey, will have that faith tested numerous turns, at many roadblocks, and like the nation of Israel, we too have been given the promise of God's ever-abiding presence through the gift of His Holy Spirit. God has given you and me this same promise. And in the same way that God functions before the people of Israel by cloud, And by fire, so too is God functioning in the lives of you and me at this very day. He is leading us and he is guiding us by his presence and by his word. And like the nation of Israel, so too for you and me, a continual reminder to walk by faith. God is promising his people by reminding them of his promises to Joseph and his promise now to lead them in this way that he is indeed always with them. But this still will not stop the nation of Israel or Moses from asking God to see his face to see his presence. And what does God tell Brother Moses in Exodus chapter 33? You can't see me. Why? Because we'll learn this lesson that's repeated to us in the Gospel of John. I can't memorize what Matthew, Mark, Luke, John John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right hand. Moses, you can't see me. We get to the New Testament, and we're reminded that no one can see God with an exception. Do you know how you and I today rightly, clearly see and understand who is God? This is what the narrative of John chapter 1 reminds us. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but He, that is Jesus, 
has expounded him. Jesus has made the Father known. Friend, if you're here today and you want to see who God is, the text of Scripture compels you and me to look at the person of Jesus. If you want to know the Father, you must know the Son. And we would plead with you today. If you're here and you're not walking with God by faith, you're not trusting in Christ, you've not repented of your sins, you have no relationship with the Father, we pray today that God by His Word, by His Spirit might compel you to believe in Jesus. For Jesus is the one who rightly points us to the Father. Jesus is the one who grants to you and me faith by his death, burial, and resurrection, and rightly places us in relationship with the Father. But notice this next scene. God continually humiliates Pharaoh. We've seen this narrative already play out at a few turns. In fact, I would say to you, 10 previous times we've seen this narrative. But Pharaoh's like many of us. He's hard-hearted. He's stubborn. Look what happens beginning here in verse Chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hiratha, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now none of us have any idea in any measurable way where these two cities are. You can guess, and your guess would be as good as my guess. But we do know that the right guess is wherever these two encampments are, they are on a journey from the north down southward and nearing the Red Sea. But notice what the text says. You shall, don't miss it, encamp facing it by the sea. Why? Verse 3 For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they have no idea what they are doing. They are a wandering people, wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Pharaoh is speaking far better than he even knows at this point. Pharaoh is viewing things with a myopic lens. Pharaoh can't see past his own stubborn heart. 
Pharaoh can't see past his own desires. Pharaoh, if you will, can't see tomorrow, and because he can't see tomorrow, he acts foolishly today. It's really incredible. We don't know how much time has elapsed between the Passover, between Israel's leaving. We don't know how many days have passed since the nation of Israel experienced the death of the firstborn. And so it's truly shocking, is it not? It's truly shocking that Pharaoh would act in such a way. This past Wednesday, I did a funeral for a 17-month-old baby. The mom and her 17-month-old and three-year-old were at Grandma's house visiting here in Baton Rouge. Mom had the 17-month-old and the three-year-old in the bathtub. She grabs the three-year-old three out of the bathtub, lays him on the bed, drives him off, places his pajamas on him, goes back into the bathroom to get the 17-month-old, and the young man lies drowned in the bathtub. And I sat at that funeral with a young mom and a family and wept. There were a few words spoken. That young mom will not quickly forget the death of the 17-month-old. My aunt was killed in 1999 at 42 years old. And I watched my 70-plus-year-old grandmother grieve and grieve. And Meemaw would die at 89. There was never a day that passed where she didn't forget the death of my Aunt Marita. So you approach this text. And the only way that we can explain Pharaoh's actions is to understand rightly Pharaoh's heart's disposition before God. The only way Pharaoh acts and the manner in which he does is to have a heart that is completely, totally strengthened and it's resolved against God. And it's hardness against God. And Pharaoh's hard heart causes him to so quickly forget the humiliation and the death and the destruction that the nation of Egypt had, had experienced in a relatively short period of time in human history. 
And look how he leads the nation of Israel with a hard heart, the nation of Egypt with a hard heart. Verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, mind of Pharaoh and his servants, what did it do? What does the text say? It was changed toward the people. Pharaoh's going to communicate what he's always communicated. What is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. Perhaps by this time, Pharaoh has begun to get reports back from the brick manufacturers that things aren't going so well for the advancement of the nation of Egypt and for the growth of Ramses, perhaps. He's not satisfied that the buildings aren't being built as quickly as he desires. We all understand a million people have walked out. These million people were the large majority of them providing you support and and labor. They were building your country. It's no surprise Pharaoh would be getting such reports, and he desires that the nation of Israel would serve them once again. So look what happens, verse 6. He made ready his chariot, and he took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pi-Hiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. (coughs) So Pharaoh does what his strength and heart enables him to do to act in a way that is contrary to all wisdom and good sense. Pharaoh is now going to put on display what he perceives to be the greatest might in all the world. Pharaoh has still yet to learn the lesson of exactly who is Yahweh. Pharaoh has yet to learn the lesson that Yahweh is not some local deity confined by an image on a wall or literature from a country written about a narrative of some God that controls some aspect of life. Pharaoh has not learned the lesson that Yahweh is all-powerful and all-knowing and that He is everywhere, not confined by locality. So he mounts his chariots. Notice what the text says. (coughs) There's at least 600 of his 
most prized, chosen chariots. The text also says that there are other chariots. Perhaps there are thousand chariots. Does that chariot drive itself? No, you got to have men in those chariots. And all that, you got to have animals, horses to, to drive those, to pull those chariots. So you can image in your mind just how massive this display of military might is for Pharaoh and the fear that it might cause in the hearts and the minds of the nation of Israel. And now notice what the text does. The text shows us that the people of God are going to respond just like the pagan Pharaoh. They, too, have so quickly forgotten God's providential care for their lives. They, too, have forgotten of the salvation that God has provided for them in bringing them out of Egypt. They have forgotten the screams and the voices of the nation of Israel, Egypt as they cried out from heartache, from the death of all of the firstborn. They have forgotten the noise of destruction and the smell of death. And look what happens in this text, verse 10, 11, and 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they did what? Feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, it is... And, the, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Some of the saddest words communicated in all of the texts of Scripture that God's people would so quickly forget his salvation. That they would so quickly and easily forget that He and He alone has provided salvation for them. Such that they would say, it is better for us to live as slaves to pagan Pharaoh than free men and women before a holy and righteous and good God. But this wouldn't be the last time the nation of Israel cried out like this, would it? 
they would do it in Numbers. Chapter 14, they would do it again with Joshua. Joshua cried out on behalf of the nation of Israel as he was preparing for battle and fear. And this is what's gripped the hearts of the nation of Israel. They are being driven by fear of the present and not the hope of eternity. And now, friends, you know why the narrative began the way it did. What was God doing at the beginning of this narrative? And telling the story of Joseph's bones so that the nation of Israel might be reminded. Why was God given to him his presence? So that the nation of Israel might be reminded. And yet, look how quickly the nation of Israel would turn away from faith and hope and trust in God's providential care for them. And this, my friends, is the reason why we have so many warning passages in the New Testament. Because the hearts that beat inside the chest of the Israelites 4,000 years ago are the same hearts that are beating inside my chest and your chest this morning. The same propensity to leave the God that they love is not only a reality for the nation of Israel, it is also a reality for you and for me. It was also a reality for the young church as the apostles were going throughout the known world proclaiming the truths of the gospel. This is why we have text like James chapter 5 that compels us if we are sick in faith that we should present ourselves before the elders of the church and, and let them anoint us with oil and pray for the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Why? Because we're all prone to be sick in faith. Why? Because we are all prone when faced with such incredible fear to be just like the Egyptians and to exclaim, I was far better off without God than I am with God. For see, friends, when God calls us on this journey to faith, He has not called us to a narrative that says, if you come to me, everything in life will be okay. You'll have everything you need. You'll never face trials. You'll never face struggles. You'll have all the money you want. That is a false gospel and a false truth. And those that follow that way, they're on the wide path that leads to destruction. Israel, you and I, on this faith journey, will face fear. 
we will face difficulty. And the question will be, how will we face it? Will you face it like Israel? Or will you face it like Moses? Look what Moses says in these concluding words. Verse 13. This closing scene, Moses leads his people to renew their faith in God. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see, see what? See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Israel is reminded in this text of Scripture that they are not to trust in themselves They are not to fear the chariots and the wealth, the material might and military might of the opposing forces of Yahweh. Rather, Israel is to do what God has always called her people to do, rest and lie securely in God. We learn a few things about God in these verses that Moses gives us in these words of hope. God is the dispeller of fear. Nothing seems to paralyze the heart like fear. Nothing seems to cause people to act in a more irrational way than fear. And our world throws all kind of answers to a spiritual problem of fear. When fear is increased, what you and I need more of is God. What we need less of is the wisdom of the world. What we need less of is us. Who is going to be the one that displaces the fear in the hearts and the lives of the nation of Israel in this context? Themselves. What do they have to look at? They have to turn this way and see the Red Sea. There's nowhere to go. What do they have to look this way? All they see is the might of the military power of Pharaoh, and they have absolutely nothing. What are they going to do? Sign a peace treaty with Egypt? Hey, guys, we got a deal for you. All this wealth we have, we stole from you. We'll give you your stuff back if you won't mess with us. See how well that works for you. God is the one that is going to dispel fear in this text. God is also the one who delivers them from distress. Fear 
depression, anxiousness, are all expressions of human experience. Every one of those are experiences that any one of us at any given moment can walk in. But what causes that fear and anxiousness and despair? The same thing that caused the fear and anxiousness and despair in the heart and the lives of the nation of Israel. They were looking to themselves and not to God. They were focused on their current circumstances in such a way that they could not see the hope of tomorrow. But notice what God does in this text. What does God call the nation of Israel to do? To walk out of that fear, to walk out of that anxiousness, to walk out of that despair. God says to the nation of Israel, don't worry boys, I'm sending in some F-16s that are gonna drop some major bombs on the nation of, of Egypt. You have nothing to worry about. No. See the salvation that comes from the Lord. You know what God is doing to dispel the fear in our hearts? Do you know what God is doing in the context of this passage of Scripture to deliver His people from distress? Do you know what God is still doing today to dispel fear in your life and to deliver you and me from our distress? The same thing He's always been doing. And you can't get any of that at a local pharmacy in America. But you can get it from King Jesus. Look to Christ and see that salvation has come near to you. And not just look for today. For friends, I'm telling you that each of us might be placed in a circumstance, in a situation in life, that for this momentary expression of life might never give us relief. I'm telling you, that young mama will always live with a sense of grief. Some of you here have experienced those same exact expressions of fear and desperation and death and heartache. How do we overcome it? We look not to ourselves, but we hope in the eternal salvation that God has provided us and we realize we are simply passing through. This world is not our home. We look to the eternal. We look to the salvation 
that God and God alone is providing for you and for me. God is a dispeller of fear, this text shows us. God will deliver them from their distress. And God invites and expects you and me to trust in him. That's what he's doing. Look to this salvation, which the Lord will work for you today. God expects. We hear the kind words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden. Who will give you rest, friends? We hear the compassionate call of Christ as he says to his disciples located on that hillside along the Sea of Galilee. Look at the birds of the air. Are they provided for? Look at the lilies of the field. Are they clothed? If I care for them, how much more shall I care and provide for you? This is what Jesus, this is what God is expecting of your life and my life, that we might trust in him. And friends, this text reminds us lastly that the greatest relief that you and I need in all the world is not relief from the depression of the current moment. The greatest relief you and I need in all the world is not a mental sense of peace from the difficulty of a ravenous, raging boss. The greatest need you and I have in life is not that Santa Claus might place a bag of money at the Christmas tree and pay off our mortgage. This text reminds us, friends, that the greatest need and relief in all of human history is freedom from sin. Egypt serves not primarily as a reminder for the nation of Israel what it's like to be enslaved in terms of enslaved to another. Egypt serves as a reminder of what it's like to be slave to a worldview. Egypt reminds us of what it's like to be slave, enslaved to another God. Egypt reminds us of what it's like to be enslaved to our own sin. Egypt reminds us of what it is like to be separated from a holy, good, loving, saving God. And Moses reminds us that the way you and I find relief is to look to the salvation that God has provided you. Would you look there today, friends? Would you look to Christ today? Would you see the salvation that He and He alone
Would you trust in him? Would you turn from Egypt? Would you turn from yourself? Would you trust in a holy God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the salvation indeed that you have provided to us through Christ and Christ alone. We thank you for the revelation of this text of scripture that reminds us that you, God, are continually at work on behalf of your people, calling us to increase our faith and our hope and our trust in you. And so we pray that you would cause that to be so today. Would you take a few moments where you're seated, friend, and respond and reflect upon the preaching of God's word? In what ways do you see in your own life a desire to go back to Egypt? In what ways do you see the pleasures of sin in your life? Would you confess those to Christ this morning? Would you ask the Lord to renew your hope in Him? Would you ask the Lord to do what he did for the nation of Israel and remind you of the promises that he's given to you? Would you see the beauty and the glory of God in Christ? Perhaps you're here today, friend, and you've never trusted in Christ. You've always been down in Egypt. You've always been enjoying the pleasures of the world. And today, God, by his word and his spirit, has convicted you of your need to trust in Christ. Would you believe in Christ today? The scripture says, if you confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raising from the dead, you can be saved. Would you turn from the pleasures of this world and toward the joy of Christ today? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. If you're here this morning and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, as we sing, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. We would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come forward and speak to one of us. Please feel free to turn to someone seated next to you, for there are plenty of people seated around you that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Perhaps you're here and, and like all of us, you're in a season of life, a moment of life in which, like the nation of Israel, you're tempted to say to God, I was better off without you. And you'd like one of us to pray with you that your faith might be strengthened. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected 
to live out your life on mission with Christ, this would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. God, as we stand and respond to the preaching of your word, might our responses be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?